1: Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST.
2: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
3: You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. Welcome to Miss Apex Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Spanners-Ready. We're doing things a little bit differently this week. This is a pre-record. There's no live stream because I will be on a beach in God's own county. That's Essex, England. Uh, and in this show, we will bring you some news. We're going to be talking to Catman and Christian about the latest comings and goings in Formula One. We're also going to do a tech segment where Matt will catch up with Matthew Summerfield, Deputy Chief Technical Editor at Motorsport.com, and we'll be addressing some listener feedback, because boy, we've had a bunch. And we're also going to catch up with Chris Stevens as well to talk about LGBTQ visibility in motorsport and the Aston Martin Racing Pride Initiative. But to kick off, I'll introduce you to my friend and co-host, Matt. Two rumpets. Hello
1: there, Matt. Hello there, Spanners. I must ask, will you be having the typical British beach weather of overcast, raining, and howling winds? Or have you programmed something differently for your visit? You always roll the dice in the UK, but at the
3: moment we seem to be in the middle of heatwave after heatwave, so I am hoping for paradise on Earth, which is North Essex. I think this week we're going to be talking a little bit about the stuff we missed in Baku, and I think the main thing I missed about Baku on our race review last week. And I'll forgive us because we do do it immediately after the race. So we're getting a kind of raw impression on a Sunday evening. If you want to listen to lazier podcasts that wait till Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, then yes, they've had a chance to let it all simmer down. But now it's simmered down for me, Matt. The main thing is how delighted I was that Red Bull was out ahead with two cars and Lewis Hamilton was struggling to get by them. Isn't this... Isn't this everything we've wanted as F1 fans? A competitive top of the grid.
1: I do believe we've waited roughly seven years <laughs> for this scenario to present itself. And now that it finally has, we're going to change all of the rules for next season. But even when it was Vettel challenging Hamilton, it was still two Mercedes
3: versus a Ferrari. When it was uh, Verstappen, it was one Red Bull versus two Mercedes. To see that flipped around, was just wonderful. And you see Lewis Hamilton and Mercedes now at the edge of their comfort zone.
1: Yeah, well, and this is, this answers, I mean, we've seen Lewis win championships. We've seen him come close. But there's no way anyone's taking this one away from him if he wins it this season, because he will have won it, not the other teams have lost it. We are an independent podcast produced in the podcasting
3: shed with the kind permission of our better halves. We aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute. We might be wrong, but we're first. <music> Bringing some class and grace and style to Missed Apex Podcast is Chris Catman-Turner. How's it going, Chris? Ah, good. I I assumed you were talking about our other guest there. That doesn't describe me at all. No, I subverted everyone's expectations. You're you're a handsome man. And not only that, Mr. Turner, you're also a captain of industry. You own your own business. And I've often described you as the only true grown-up on the Miss Apex podcast panel. And I don't want to distract away from Formula One. I just wanted to make this quick note because you're a professional vet. If you ever find yourself on an alien planet and you're ill... You shouldn't ask for their culture's doctors. You should ask for their culture's vets because they're used to treating a wide variety of species.
4: That's true. But if they ask you to take their temperature, just politely decline. Roger that.
3: Right. Let's move on to our next guest. It is broadcaster, DJ, commentator, an all-round man of wisdom,
5: Christian Pedersen. How's it going, Christian? Good evening. I have a question for you, Spence. Oh, I'll answer it. Um, It's been bogging my mind, I think, since Monday, It was on the last podcast. Uh, You were heard saying, did the Death Star have a commander?
3: Oh, okay. I don't really know Star Wars, so I might have messed that up.
5: So who's Darth Vader? The main bad guy. The Death Star commander. Oh. It's important you know this. You have kids. You could argue it's the Emperor, actually. Yeah, okay, true. Let's not get into the details, Chris. <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> so
4: that, that was all from me saying that
3: in my F1 fandom, Ferrari has always been the death star. And when I talk about Vettel having been the bad guy, Schumacher being the bad guy, that is all just in context of me as an F1 fan needing that enemy, needing that opponent to, to play against if you're playing a game of football you obviously you need an opponent you can't they can't just be your best friends in a boxing match you would True. want someone to come at you so
4: that you can fight them chris isn't that really hard though when they've got the lovely charles leclerc and carlos sites both excellent lovely people no ferrari are totally
3: ruining their death star image with two of the most likable drivers
1: on the grid and as we all know, the best way to ruin your Death Star image is to not win for like a really, really, really long time. Yeah. And there will be generations of people growing
3: up now where Mercedes are the Death Star.
5: And actually you need the Death Star to to, to make it exciting. So if you don't have if you have black, you have to have white. If you have light, you have to have darkness. And every time there's a big manufacturer winning all the time, they automatically become the Death Star. The
4: three-pointed Death Star in Mercedes' exactly, case. Yeah. yeah. True. (laughs) Fair enough. All right, let's get to
3: a Baku roundup. (laughs) I think, Matt, we did obviously cover the red flag and the safety car stuff, but Adam Rosales in our Patreon Slack group asks Could you talk about the safety car delays and race director decisions for the red flag and the safety car? I I thought that the red flag was wrong at the time. I may have softened on that slightly, but I still feel, this is my main argument, I still feel that had the race directors had no knowledge of the lap count, so if they didn't know whether it was lap 67 or lap 42 or lap 80, then naturally they would have cleared the debris, they would have let the cars unlap themselves, and then the race would have finished without their knowledge. So, to me, what they did was an unnatural decision. And I think, I don't think I'm wrong or unfair when I say they deliberately made that decision for the interests of the sport and the viewership.
1: Uh, Well, I think, had they made the decision, the debris would not have even been cleared before the checkered flag was flown. So, yes, I agree with you there. It was very clear, and Mazzy admitted as much in an interview that. As soon as we saw it, uh, it was clear we wouldn't be able to clean it up before the end of the race. And all things being equal, we felt that it was better for everyone to finish the last two laps under competition, under green flag competition circumstances, rather than just run everyone home in the safety car. Catman, it's Americanism gone
3: mad. Showmanship over sportsmanship. Oh, but it was fantastic end to the race. Yeah, I know it was. Yeah, <laughs> no, no, no. Don't get me wrong. I'm a shallow fan as well. And it was ah. super exciting.
4: I'm just saying, like it's organic. You could say that actually, the first safety car was the inconsistent decision. Giving the decisions they made at Mugello last year, for example, where they had a couple of red flags for debris on the start straight, and it took a while to clean it up. So actually, you could say that flying the safety car now for that sort of incident
1: is is not the correct decision. I would absolutely 100% beg to differ, and I think Christian will agree with me. The main reason you weren't going to see a red flag there is because Stroll had parked the remnants of his car in such a place that no one could actually access the pit lane. So they were a bit they were a bit hung out to dry with regards to that.
5: I'd also like to argue that um, when, when it was introduced back in the days, the safety car—no, the, the restarts during a red flag, everyone was— Everyone we've to- I've talked to about this race was yeah yeah. And still we are here sitting debating if it was a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, I I think I think I think sometimes we need to cut them some slack because I don't think we saw any unfairness during the the. I'm not saying you guys are after them or anything, but uh, we didn't th- see anything that was directly unfair. Okay, so so what we're saying is. What we're
3: saying is that the restart wasn't to benefit one side or the other. It was with the thought in mind that we didn't want the race to finish under safety car conditions because that would have been a disappointment. Let's make the True. decision as early as True. we can. Let's stop it and and have two full racing laps left. So in that regard, you can see the intention and it worked. And this is why I'm True. struggling, Catman, because it worked. And you're right. And Christian's right. Ah! That's what everyone did. And the restart was exciting and dramatic. But we can just admit that it was for that reason. And that's okay. But that is one out of ten steps towards sprinklers, isn't it?
4: Isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. But I, I think if you were to make the same decision again or have the same position again, I would love for them to make the same de- decision
0: again.
1: No, if you're throwing a safety car just to close the field back up because, oh, I don't yeah. know. Uh nikita Mazepin brushed to the wall we're going to throw a safety car so we can clean up what might be a shard of carbon fiber on the track okay now now you've gone full nascar and that's a different story but there was every reasonable uh choice to be made to red flag it so that we got two laps of running at the end versus just finishing under the safety car
4: so you were talking about the decision to throw the flag early so what about actually getting the safety car out early? Because a lot of the drivers complained
5: that the safety car wasn't there quick enough. I'll just add that when, when TV got colors, some complained. <laughs> so there's something called evolution. And I think actually, I think Liberty is doing it really, really well. Considering what you see on American TV, uh, if you watch an IndyCar race, that's like this is the Chevrolet Cam, brought to you by Heineken in a Budweiser vein. I mean, it's just hilariously bad, and you have a commercial break every five minutes. So what they're doing is very toned down, and it works. So I mean, hats off. And we went a little
3: bit down that path with the the little studs at the bottom of the car what are they made out of I've forgotten the ones that make the sparks. titanium titanium sparks weren't yeah, they that's a little bit they
1: do nothing
3: shut up old man pedderson they are amazing and why? and <laughs> they
1: made liberty for that though that oh, was, was it
3: was it before yeah, i remember true, my, true. The, the first time they did it my son went whoa and it got his attention and i was like yeah
1: they do look pretty cool but. yeah I, I, it used to be tungsten i think because they were heavier and before that it had been titanium and then and then bernie was like i like the sparks that i saw and some other thing maybe it was the nurberg ring where cars were on their sides <laughs> generating sparks i don't really know but he said i want that back and sparks so sparks will make it,
3: and it lets you know the undulation of the track and the bumps that you're dealing with as well so not completely useless it does look cool yeah it does You'll have to remind me what we were talking about though. Oh yes, the safety car decision. The yeah. the thing that came out of that was the McLaren engineers complaining about Yuki Tsunoda,
1: Matt. Yeah. Now, here's the thing. Uh now everyone's like why did it take so long for the safety car to come out? And I don't really know the answer to that. I haven't seen anyone I haven't seen a, an interview where he said oh, it was X it was Y it was Z. But here's what I do know straight away is that the sector where the crashes were were covered by double waved yellow flags and the the wording for double waved yellow flags is slow down and be prepared to stop yeah now i know formula one cars stop really fast so it's so like from a i'm driving my family sedan point of view it, it can be a bit hard to judge but i'm not convinced all of those cars were going slow enough and were really prepared to stop if they needed to Did
5: you watch Julian Palmer's uh, walkthrough where, I mean, Sonoda and was it Gasly? I think they didn't lift at all. And also they, they drove past just immediately afterwards. And uh, maybe they didn't have time to react and stuff like that. But the fact that nothing happens from this on the fastest
1: track at all, I think is a little bit strange. It is now in the past formula one set out a, a formula for the mini sectors, you have to slow by X percent per mini sector, or you will not be considered to have respected the double wave yellows. But I believe that even whatever percentage they set still resulted in what sort of everyone considered to be quote unquote dangerous conditions. And Mazzy himself said, I felt like the whole field was going too yeah. fast. Like I know you're pointed at Sunoda, So, yeah, I'm thinking it's going to be a real interesting driver's meeting at Paul Ricard about this. So, this is w- why.
3: I got upset on the race review about uh, the, the radio between the team and race director being broadcast. Now, like everyone else, I thought it was a brilliant thing, and, and for entertainment, it's great. But as soon as we saw that argument between Ma- uh, McLaren and Massey, you suddenly realised the danger. So the McLaren engineers basically c- c- forced the hand of Massey to make an on-the-spot public decision. And his decision was no, nothing about Yuki. Everyone's bad. I will mention it in the race brief later. So even now, when we see the telemetry, pride starts to take a, a place in there, Christian, because Massey is—he's in his professional reputation is on the line because it's broadcast. His snap decision is broadcast. And he's now got to stick with his original decision that everyone was equally bad. Even if we can see traces that Sonoda was much worse than, say, Norris, who you can see on the graph, the graphs I've seen, uh, lifts entirely. So the McLaren guys were kind of right to go, well, well, Norris lifted and Sonoda didn't. But now Massey's got to double down because he was publicly called out on it. And he's had to make that decision in the open.
5: I think we've we've seen some strange, messy decisions generally uh, the last year or so, but we can talk about that another time. In this specific uh, situation, I think it highlights what goes on inside the the head of a driver because we've all been karting. We know when the yellow light comes on at the rental karting track, we have to stop, but we don't really stop. We drive half a meter more and yet we, we just get a meter. Yeah. and that is because that is the mindset of racing so you have these 20 year olds driving around with the mindset of i'm going to be faster than anyone here and that is the constant feeling in his head and then suddenly he has to slow down there's something wrong in that uh, in that uh, in that situation so i think if we could do something like maybe downgrade the power in sectors where there are yellow lights or something like that, that would be much easier because it's a very different situation, uh, 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 a difficult situation to handle for Messi. I think, this one. Interesting. And as always, if you
3: have any direct response to what our panel are saying, feedback at mistapex.net. We love hearing from you. You can also email me, spanners at mistapex.net or Matt directly. You can bypass me altogether. Matt at mr apex.net
1: yeah so first off i'm really glad that we don't have brad and alex on the show
3: no they'd be arguing about the
1: cart race we had three years ago still yeah and the thing is all they're doing is talking about who cheated the least
3: they were both terrible under
1: yellow flags yes but this again brings up my curiosity as to how they're measuring compliance with double waved yellows because if they're measuring it by sector or by mini sector The fact that Tsunoda didn't lift by Verstappen doesn't necessarily mean he violated, quote unquote, the rule, whether it's written or simply been conveyed to the drivers. And I think it just brings up the difficulty because these cars are so unnatural and how fast they are and how they drive and how the drivers want to drive them so they stay competitive. Normally, you just say, oh, hit the pit limiter when you're in double wave yellows. But then immediately the argument is, well, that's going to be unfair if that flag is lifted when my opponent has just made up 10 seconds in the sector before that. Uh, Christian?
5: I'm thinking. uh, I think Matt is right. But uh, I'm not sure this is a thing that can be handled by the drivers entirely if we want the best races, We should have like torpedoes in the cars and we should say, now we can't go fast. Go fast again. We can they, let them decide.
4: They, they do it in the WEC with the slow zones that they employ. Um, so you have to have, so they have a slow zone of the track. Admittedly, quite often they use much bigger circuits than, than Formula One, but um, they, they have to reach the pit lane or the slow zone speed limit by the time uh, there's a specific line they have to hit it. Uh, but as you say, it's always open to abuse or when it's opened up then they can um, lose time to compete to their, employer, uh, their, their competitors.
1: In general, I think Christian is right. The last person drivers should trust with driver safety is drivers. It seems like Mazzy thinks there's a bigger problem here to be solved, and I look forward to see what solution he brings.
3: Excellent. Okay, guys, we've got another listener question. John M., asks, how bad are things going for Danny Rick? Daniel Ricardo at McLaren, of course, the new teammate of Lando Norris, has made a little bit of a journeyman of himself. He's come from Toro Rosso, he's gone to Red Bull, then made that big money decision to go over to Renault and has then from there gone to McLaren. We are six races in. It's not looking amazing, Catman. But is it as bad as it? Is it as bad as it seems? I guess, I guess, put it this way there's a couple of scenarios here. Either he was always rubbish, Norris was always better than we thought, or he's now coming into his peak, or changing cars is just unreasonably difficult. Which is it?
4: I think the changing cars thing does take time, particularly with no testing. Some of them have managed to change quicker than others. And that all, def- I think. That really depends on how much assistance you're getting with that as well and how hard the car is to drive. Because Perez came out recently and said that he's adapted much quicker than he thought he was going to be able to because Albon, believe it or not, has actually been very helpful to him. So he's been putting in a lot of time in the simulator and sharing a lot of information. So he actually credited some of his uh, victory to Alban, which I don't know if he was just being polite, but certainly he was saying that that actually was very helpful to him.
3: Well, Matt, I mean, you're a big Alborn fan and uh, I know people are getting upset because they think, well, Alban would have been doing exactly as well uh, this, this season. It's nice to hear that he wasn't vindictive about it, at least.
1: It is. And, and no, I don't think anyone would say that Albin would be having exactly the same results as Perez. Albin was a brand new baby driver. Perez is at the height of his career. You can't really say that you're going to get the same results. But what is good to know is that Albin still feels in place enough in that system that he's not, that he's not withholding information, that he's actually telling, he's telling Checo, look. This is what's hard about this car. This is what you're going to have to pay attention to. This is what always caught me out the most so that he was able to prepare and do a better job. So in that sense, it's good to, I feel like Red Bull is kind of taking care of its own better now than perhaps they used to in the days of Al-Jaswari and Buemi, et cetera. Although shouldn't say Buemi, he still works for them, but Al-Jaswari and so forth when we would just see them booted out left and right for no apparent cause. This
5: was probably the best decision at all for Alex Albon to stay with the team and just do the best to be a great ambassador for himself as a racing driver because, I mean, he didn't have many opportunities, but I think he chose the right path and he's doing an excellent job just being humble about it. I appreciate that. Uh, If you have comments for that, I have a thing about Ricciardo uh, afterwards, but I'll just wait with it.
3: Yeah, sorry. It did start on
4: Ricciardo, Catman, and you you led us down the Red Bull path. It's all Uh, your fault. It is all my fault, and I will bring it back to Ricardo then. So, um, you could say it's so. But based on the teamworking aspect of it, is Lando being less of a good team player than he was with Carlos Sainz, for example? Because now he's not the rookie; he's got to be. He's got to establish himself as the team leader. He's had what three seasons now. Um, so, is he being less helpful towards Ricardo to get him embedded to make himself? look better you know these guys have got a ruthless streak about them there's ways that you can um
5: hinder your opponent without looking too obvious about it i think um i think ricciardo was surprised that norris wasn't hey he's my new best buddy here uh, i think he was surprised by not being in that group immediately but if you look at it uh, like at uh, the pattern of uh, Lando Norris, the, the first half year with the science wasn't that great at all either. It takes time to, to I think, gain access to him. And on, on top of that, uh, don't forget that Carlos Sainz actually told Ricciardo, this car is a drag, just wait and see. And they're like uh, blinking to each other. Yeah, you were right. So if you have a car like that, where you totally have to change your driving style, it is going to take half a year. And I mean, already you could see some of the times he did in Baku, he did really well, I think. Uh, he's, he's definitely progressing and he's a very, very fast driver. When he gets to break with the McLaren car as he did in the Red Bull, I think we're going to see some changes.
1: And let's not forget, up until this year, Daniel Ricciardo has spent his entire life, as Summers and I talked about uh, earlier, with the Renault power unit. And that that change is not insubstantial in terms of a variety of different factors add to that the change at the rear of the car with the error regulations and the fact that we have brand new front tires which are really complicating things and 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 you begin to see why of all the switchers he's the one who seems to be taking the longest to get on top of his new ride
3: okay so i'm going to be unfortunately the voice of the thing that makes email complaints flood in Feedback at missedapex I think Daniel Ricardo is in trouble, and I know I've joked about Daniel Ricardo being secretly evil. So you might think that I'm anti Daniel Ricardo. I'm, I'm 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 honestly not. He's a, he's a fantastic character for Formula One. However, the the worrying thing is he keeps talking about being treated like a rookie, and he's putting a brave face on that, and he's saying, "Well, the team are treating him like he's a a, a noob," and just you know going back to basics so that he can get comfortable with the car. Combine that with the fact that there's every chance, Catman, that Lando Norris is a genuine superstar. British, hashtag British bias. There is every chance that Lando Norris in his, what, fourth, third, fourth year in Formula One has gone from lovable Caterpillar to very serious, indeed, butterfly. And the Daniel Ricciardo is just meeting a talent in a team established in the team and it could just be too much my prediction here is that this season it's too much he will not get up to Lando Norris's level this season that's my call
4: yeah and don't forget Lando in his junior formula won everything and dominated everything except for Formula 2 when he came up against Russell and he was a bit distracted by getting the McLaren contract has ricardo found himself in the very position that he didn't want to be in when he left red bull he left red bull because the team was max's team he had a long-term contract he was uh max's max was everybody's favorite he then moved to Renault to be Renault's favorite but he didn't get on there and so he's now jumped to mclaren where their golden boy lando has just signed a multi-year contract they're building the team around him long term where does that leave danny where does that leave danny matt
1: well i think that leaves danny having a very set period of time to figure his um oh you need you nearly said a leclerc slash verstappen bad word
5: and everybody would
3: have been alarmed except the dane christiansen here christiansen
5: sorry christian pedersen I've been called worse on this podcast, Benna, So I've called you Kevin before, haven't I? Cuz <laughs> yeah. every Danish person is called Kevin. I'm ready for it. I think uh I, I don't think um I think McLaren is the right team for Ricciardo. And I think you underestimate the team spirit in McLaren just a little bit because it's new times there. Zach Brown is a great CEO, uh and is really proving his worth right now. He was he came in as the silent one and now he's uh, picking the fruits. And I think he has a lot of uh, sympathy and.
3: uh, Well, hang on a minute. Whoa, whoa, you're saying Seidel came in as the silent one? I mean, he's not exactly doing jumping jacks and karaoke renditions of my achy, breaky heart on his team (laughs) interviews, is he? No,
5: well, I think if he did, you would cringe. You uh,
6: would I be
3: want, like, I want
5: Seidel I, I, I doing Billy Way Cyrus <laughs> yeah, impressions. I don't think uh, he, he's he's the type that should stay silent. He's doing a great <laughs> job of thing. <laughs> and I, I just think there's a great atmosphere in McLaren at the time. And I think he will benefit from that. And I think they're actually helping him. Okay.
3: I think, uh, Matt, one last point on that before we shuffle up the grid.
1: Well, for me, it's always the woulda, coulda, shoulda. I, I think if I'm Ricardo right now, I, I'm doing my best not to have any regrets when I look at the entirely changed leadership structure at my former team, and I look at the fact that I could have been the one crushing Alonzo instead of Ocon. Yeah. And, and and that just brings up to me the very interesting thing. Had he chosen to stay and Alonzo came back, could we have seen the delightful pairing of Ocon and Norris at McLaren? Because I think that would have been its own special fun as well. Excellent. Well, guys, as I mentioned
3: earlier, we've got a... Uh a Frankenstein show where we're stitching together a few different topics. So do stay tuned. We're going to have a tech time with Matthew Summerfield. Uh, we're going to have an experimental segment that may or may not appear. Like if we record it and it's terrible, we're just going to bin it. And uh, we also will catch up with Chris Stevens as well uh, to talk about an Aston Martin initiative too. But before we go to those things, I think we'll we'll end to talk about, uh, we're talking about the woes at mercedes matt because oh am i am i stomping all over tech time topics here
1: well i mean no because we won't talk about it in the same kind of excruciating detail um but also because uh, some of the stuff we're talking about has happened since uh we recorded our segment and the, the biggest thing to come out of mercedes is they are now saying that they think they have a bead on the issue that's been plaguing them at Monaco and at Baku, and they think they may be able to engineer a fix for it. And we saw sort of hints of that in Lewis's turnaround. But by time they'd sorted it out, it was the end of FP3 and really effectively too late. So they're saying that Lewis was even racing with a suboptimal setup based on what they understand now.
3: Okay, so they think they've got a handle on it. In that case, I think we'll leave that, because it sounds like you've basically summarised that entire story. I will end on Matt in the chat room. Uh, Not in the chat room, we don't have a live chat today. Matt in the Slack group has asked, I think your whole panel should try to predict the results of the triple header coming up, and the loser has to have a forfeit. no. No forfeits, but we can give some wild predictions for the next three races coming up, which are uh, the French Grand Prix and then a doubleheader at the Red Bull Ring. So, first of all, I'll say I don't hate the French Grand Prix as much as some people. I get that it's not a TV spectacular, but in its favour, Catman, in its favour, drivers do race at that track. They're not scared of binning it. They're not scared of gravel. They're not scared of going for a move because they can just go back on track. So as long as they can't gain an advantage leaving the track from a sporting point of view, like it's fine. They can they can race there.
4: Yeah, the track itself is okay. My eyes just go a bit funny with the yes. uh, the off track painting, um, but. Yeah if they were i th- would it not have been a more interesting idea to do a double header at Paul Ricard without wanting to anger people and they could actually have chosen different layouts for example and maybe tested something interesting.
1: Uh, Matt. Yes well along those lines it's just come out that they were apparently looking at a reverse direction Red Bull Ring race oh. that I'm assuming on safety grounds they've decided yeah. they can't really run but yeah yeah, you're always looking for that alternate layout if you're going to be at the same track twice. So maybe we'll see different tire compounds. I don't really know. Yeah, they wanted one to... one reversed.
5: Sorry, Chris. Sorry.
1: No, it's okay. I, I was going to say they wanted to do
4: Silverstone uh, reversed when it first came out in the pandemic, but then they decided, as Matt was saying, that the barriers were the wrong way around. So if you can imagine uh, if Max had hit the, uh, the barrier in Baku, the pit lane barrier, it would have been the same at every corner around Silverstone if you're going the wrong way because of the... Uh, the places where the uh, the marshals have to drag the cars back into, they just have end-on barriers right there.
1: Uh,
5: Christian? Um, Paul Ricard, I think, uh, as a driver, I don't think it's a boring track, but the the thing is for the visual presentation of the track. So from a viewing point of view, you have no idea what's going on. You just see all these dotted blue lines or these blue lines no idea if if they're following the right path or what. And I think that's the main problem with Paul Ricard. You could easily do that track and that race much more interesting by maybe painting the racetrack for that particular weekend in a theme, maybe a sponsor theme. Do something
1: wild. I just put big yellow arrows in the direction of travel when you get to the turn so everyone knows what's about to happen. Yeah. Something,
5: something new, something fresh, and I think Paul Ricard has uh, has possibilities and uh, actually uh, great racing sometimes. Okay, so
3: there's three podiums. What I'm going to say to my panel is: race one, one two three; race two, one two three; race three, one two three. So I'll give mine first to give my panel a chance to think. Paul Ricard, it's wide open. There's uh, quite a few high-speed segments there. It's a test track, so I think it is going to be high grip uh, as opposed to the street circuits we've been on. I think that will suit Mercedes, and I think it will be low-tire wear. So, for Paul Ricard, I am going for Hamilton, Verstappen, Perez. When we get to Austria, I think there will be slightly higher wear. I can't really remember. Maybe Matt will yell at me on his predictions. So I think on those races, I think Perez is going to be a little bit more competitive than we've seen. I think Bottas will be absent for all those three races. So for Austria one, I'm going for Hamilton, Verstappen, Perez. And race two, I'm going for Perez, Hamilton, Verstappen. All right, Christian, you've had enough time to think it over. What do you think? Predict stuff. Or Ricard, Hamilton, Leclerc, signs. Leclerc? In a, Ferra- two, a Ferrari double podium? Uh, have you been yeah, drinking? So. Have you been taking mushrooms? What is it the Vikings wait, used to eat? Let's wait and
5: see. I think maybe they could do something good there. He's gone berserker, everyone. I'm so sorry. Aus- Austria 1, Max, Hamilton, Bottas. Austria 2, Hamilton, Max, Paris. Oh, okay. I like it. So the number two swapping places. Come on.
4: I am going to predict uh, fairly similar to you guys at Ricard in that uh, I think Hamilton will win uh, with Verstappen followed by Perez because I think Bottas just won't turn up. However, at Austria for the first race, I think the championship is going to hot up and Lewis and Verstappen are going to collide at some point during the race. <laughs> and that will allow Lando to come through and
3: take <laughs> his first ever
4: victory. Amazing. Trumpets.
1: Well, see, now I have a disagreement. Well, first of all, I'm really annoyed that you picked the exact podium as me for Paul Ricard. That's just like wrong. I, I feel like I have, you know, there's clearly something broken in my brain at this point. But aside from that, I think at the Red Bull ring, first race, we're going to see Verstappen, Hamilton, and Perez in that order. Second race is where I think it's all going to come to a head, Catman. And we're going to see Vettel, Perez, and then Norris on the podium. Christian?
5: I just like these predictions because it <laughs> makes you feel warm when uh, when Matt says Vettel as a winner. It just makes you feel good. Mm, it's probably not going to happen, but it makes me feel good. It could happen.
1: It almost did happen. If Perez had a good enough start, Hamilton would have taken him out and Vettel would have won <laughs> at Baku. Well, that concludes
3: the news element of this episode of Missed Apex Podcast. If you want to follow any of our panel, Catman, christian pedersen or matt trumpets look in the show notes and please do consider supporting us at patreon.com forward slash missed apex don't go away we're about to do this thing this thing that's appearing now hi guys i'm here with our new friend jeff o'boyle hello jeff Hello, Spanners. How are you? I'm good. For some reason, you've decided to talk to us about the olden days racing driver rivalries.
2: Yeah, well, you know, it's about inter-team battles more than anything else. And in recent years, we haven't really had any decent inter-team battles in modern Formula 1. You've got Bottas' version, you know, still no good. Uh, Insert number here against Hamilton. You had uh, Max Verstappen against uh, that carousel of mediocrity. And then you had... um, Vettel and you know his demise so we had to look I had to go back 30 years to find something decent uh, to talk about
3: well yeah in recent times we've had obviously uh, Rosberg Hamilton that seemed to be the kind of the definitive
2: rivalry of our time and then we've
3: threatened to have an epic rivalry between Vettel and Hamilton but it it kind of fizzled out didn't it like Ferrari they had those two big challenges and they and they just kind of Ferraried out of it.
2: Yeah, they Ferrari themselves. I mean, Mm. the Rosberg Hamilton one was pretty epic, but I still don't rank that as highly. I don't want to, you know, spoiler alert, I don't want to rank that as highly as some of the others because it was so short lived and Hamilton's reliability record was so poor in 2016 that actually, you know, without the engine failures, he would have walked it. Um,
3: Well, you're talking about olden days F1 rivalries and it was all about just whose car didn't conk out a lot of the time. (laughs)
2: Yeah, we'll come to that in the first rivalry, but you look back at some of those old races and the reliability was incredible. You've got, you know, I think Keke Rosberg won the championship in '82 just by finishing six races or something like that. It's ridiculous. And didn't
3: he only win one race that season as yeah, well?
2: Yeah, he won, he won one. I think he was one of two finishers.
3: <laughs> right, well, there we go. Okay, so we're going to take a peek back to the olden days. And we're just going to start off with one rivalry that you've ranked lowest on your, on your uh, six rivalries you've pointed out. So who are we looking at from the past?
2: Yeah, so uh, probably not a rivalry that's in the forefront of everyone's mind, but it's, it's the mighty, notorious rivalry of René Arnoux against Alain Prost. Uh, a young, nasally endowed Prost had just arrived on the scene.
3: At, re- at, uh, at Renault. So are we sticking... Is your, is your list all teammates? So
2: yes. Into so team battles? Notionally called when teammates attack or when number twos go bad... Um, depending on your point of view
3: yeah well you will have to assign who you think was the number two in this situation so tell us a little bit set some background for Arnaud versus Prost
2: yeah so two very different drivers both French both Gallic, both a bit grumpy both driving for the <laughs> French super team at Renault um, René Arnaud had a bit of a journeyman uh, sort of career up to this point he didn't have any money he had to sort of scrape and you know, tooth and nail into Formula 1. He worked as a mechanic to try and fund himself and he didn't really make it until he was well into his 30s. Prost, on the other hand, was France's young hope. He was well-funded by Elf. As he said himself in his autobiography, in his entire racing career, it never cost him a son team. Um, but uh, in terms of the racing background, Arnaud was well-established, very well-regarded. He potential future world champion as every driver who arrives in F1 is billed at some point or other and he was the the team leader in 1980 I know we're going back right. a fair bit here to the olden days
3: no no um, the thing is the 80s for me I was born in 1980 you were born several decades before that <laughs> but uh, so for me I did watch races in the 80s being plonked down in front of the sofa you love Formula 1 now you can't tell me what to do ooh race cars uh, so th- <laughs> these these times I've probably watched these races and these championships we're talking about uh, but they did never sunk in so when you say to me, as a forty-year-old Rene, Arno, oh uh, I don't really nothing sparks. I had to research him, so but it says yeah, he's entered in nineteen seventy-eight. He's racing for Martini thirties, and then his career ends in nineteen eighty-nine. So a substantial Grand Prix career.
2: Yeah, he was he was around for a long time, um, but then you didn't have the feeder series that, that we do now, where there's you know a constant sort of ladder of talent knocking on the door to try and get in it was quite different back then if you got in you could usually hang around one way or another for a team but um, but Prost was, was quite different he'd only had one season in Formula 1 in 1980 and it was pretty unspectacular uh, he was with McLaren finished 15th in the championship and the car was terrible it just retired well I think it re- retired more often than it didn't um, <laughs> but uh, it it uh, it was still probably finished halfway up in the championship because reliability was so poor. They, this was the turbo era engine. So they would just constantly be on fire. You know, you'd be leading by 15 seconds, then, oh no, you're on fire. Then this would continue until the guy in 10th would eventually limp across the line.
3: People hark uh, back to
2: like classic
3: Grand Prix, And I just remember sitting there with my dad and the, the, the start would be really exciting. Murray Walker, bless him, would do his best to make it seem exciting. But you were just waiting for an engine to blow up and then you go, oh, there it is. Burgers, engines blown up. Something interesting's
2: happened. But you would just sit there waiting. It was like Monaco every race. It was. And when you look back at it through modern safety standards as well, it's terrifying. You have to watch it from behind the cushion because they they just park up. There's no yellow flag. There's no runoff. There's a car sort of still on the the racing line. (laughs) Half of it's on the racing line, half of it's on the grass. It's all on fire. And there are marshals (laughs) running across the track. It's all on fire. We're just still at full speed. Everyone's at full speed. Another one's on fire going past that one. It's terrifying to watch it. Um, one of the races that we're looking at recently and the the car ended up in the catch fencing where 12 spectators were Mm. were slightly injured Um, and you think why were people standing up against the catch fencing six feet from the track yep but it was a different time Elton's safety gone mad nowadays isn't it it's it's just gone mad it's
3: political correctness gone safety that's what it is so this is this is Arno uh, René Arno's team and
2: Prost enters it Prost enters it because he's French, effectively, but he wasn't. He hadn't done anything in 1980 to, to right. show that he was going to be le Prof. Okay. So, what, what were the that...
3: expectations from most people at the time? You were quite old already at the time, so yeah, I was. Well,
2: yeah. I, I was just coming up to to my second career at B and Q at the time, uh, yeah. and uh, yeah, he, he was definitely expected to be the number two, a proper number right. two. This guy doesn't know anything. He's going to learn a lot from from le Maître, from from uh, Renny Arnu. He'll fall into line, and we, we might get a one-two finish if we finish a race. You know that's of that sort of oh so this status. is
3: a bit hamilton-y with alonso
2: yeah very very hamilton alonso spoiler alert again but uh, yeah very very hamilton alonso okay so yeah um they uh the, the the sort of scene was set in 1981 for a, a pretty routine rennie arnault will be number one prost will be number two and we'll see where we where we finish but prost didn't quite get the message and he was instantly much faster than than rennie arnault um he I, he wasn't he didn't always out-qualify him, but he did more often than not beat him in the race. So Ooh. in the first season together, you know, Prost finished, uh, I think he only finished five races, but he finished every one of them on the podium and scored 43 points. Arnoux, on the other hand, finished two more races, I think it was, and he scored 11 points. So a little bit of Gallic tension between the two teammates, um, which really blew up in 1982. So... This was the Malaysia Vettel-Weber of of its era. I have to try and bring some modern context to this because there isn't much spice in this story. I have to try and justify why it's in here. (laughs) Uh, But um, yeah, um, in in the French Grand Prix in 1982, um, Arnoux was leading, Prost was in second, but Prost still had a good chance of winning the championship. Arnoux was nowhere. So um, he got the team orders, and back then you you might imagine there was no team radio, so they had to use old-fashioned pit boards.
3: No way. Pit, hang out a pit board oh mate so it's not even like all subtle on the radio it's like fully displaying here's a sign that shows you how terribly you're doing
2: yeah um, and it was it was sort of um, they gave a secret coded message to Arnoux, um his pit crew chief Larousse held out the um, held out the, uh, the pit board and it gave the subtle message Prost 1 Arnoux 2 which was incredible given that they actual they were running in the reverse order during the race yeah. so yeah, it's um, it wasn't ideal that uh, Arnu chose to ignore that pit, pit message and win in front of the the French fans. So he got
3: the multi twenty one and just decided he got the multi
2: twenty one and ignored it. He was he was the Seb Vettel of nineteen eighty two, the Batten War. Um, but uh, yeah that, that effectively ended whatever shred of relationship the two teammates had together. I mean, they hated each other already, but that was it. All trust was gone. The, you know The, the line down the garage had been drawn, and at the end of the season, Prost was retained and went on to great things and um uh, i don 't know he was forced to go to Ferrari, which might sound like a great move, but it 's Ferrari well, so. uh,
3: the way you say it definitely made it sound like a punishment he was for, He was banished to Ferrari. René, you're going to Ferrari? No, Sacrebleu, I can, I can change. I will let him buy next time.
2: <laughs> it was too late for all that. He'd have to go to Ferrari and spend most of the time sitting at the side of the road watching his Ferrari on fire. So Prost definitely won that exchange. Yeah, very much so. I mean, that, and that set him up. That that raised his stock level quite high in Formula One, whereas you know up until that point, he hadn't been that highly regarded. But to come in and dominate a number two, it's exactly what Hamilton did against Alonso, but but to a higher degree. I mean, the gap in performance was, was really high between the two. You know, 2007, Hamilton-Alonso was a much closer fight um, and a bit spicier as well. But, uh, yeah, there was a... I mean, there's not a huge amount of spice in the press when you look back at the stories around this. But there no, was one I've quite never funny. heard of
3: this. You're literally the only person <laughs> who's ever spoken about this as a topic.
2: In that case, let me make up an anecdote which in the attempt to make it sound spicy. Um, so yeah, um, in, in Prost's autobiography, he writes about an incident where, after the race in France in 82, when he'd been denied the win that he, he thought he deserved, uh, a French uh, petrol station attendant Re- um, thought you recognised him as the Formula One Renault driver, but thought he was Monsieur Renault uh, Arnoux. So we oh. said to him in French, uh, "Well done, uh, Monsieur Arnu. You did exactly the right thing, showing that little expletive frost. Uh, Who's boss? Um, so uh, you know, presumably he paid by cash rather than card and got back in the car again. Uh, but yeah, that's the um, that's the level <laughs> of. of, of- Okay. Discontentment at the lower rankings of our inter-team rivalry battles.
3: Well, the good news, if this is an ongoing series, is that this is the lowest on the list, so presumably they'll get less bad as we go forward.
2: Yeah, I mean, this is poor. Let's not dress this up in any other way. Yeah. This, is, this, is, this is not the best inter-team battle you're going to get. But hopefully there's enough to draw people in to think, this can't get any worse. We're really scraping the barrel here. They do get much, much better, I promise. I can go full Toto Wolf here. It was not acceptable. We have had a
3: bad day. <laughs> We've had a bad recording. The, the selection was, of content was poor and it was poorly delivered. There's no excuses. We can
2: just do that, can't we? Spanners, you win as a team and you lose at a team, as a team, so we have no, to take shared responsibility not for Not in this scenario. It is all the <laughs>
3: panelists' fault. But if you want to follow Jeff, presumably you've got some social media, even though you spell
2: Jeff incorrectly, spell it with a J. Yeah, it's 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 something like that, Jeff O'Boyle on Twitter. I think my 13 followers will be delighted to have another one.
3: There's going to be like a thousand <laughs> Jeff O'Boyles. Good luck with that. So what we'll do is we'll put a link to your social media in the show notes below. Jeff O'Boyle, thanks for dropping into the shed. Come back soon.
0: Thanks. Bye, Spallers. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com
1: slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now we're joined by the hardest working man in tech F1, Matthew Summerfield, a.k.a. Summers F1, assistant technical editor at Motorsport dot com who is deigned to sit down and share some wisdom with us. It's good to see you again. Thanks for taking the time.
6: Thanks for having me on again, Matt. Uh because obviously we had a fantastic race weekend and we've got plenty of technical stuff to talk about because of that.
1: I actually kind of want to ask you some questions about Hamilton's break magic, or as I now call it break tragic incident at the restart of the Azerbaijan Grand Prix. Now at the time they said it was a lever he hit it accidentally it messed with the brakes caused him to lock up you have done some delving into this i suspect can you give us a little more accurate picture of what was going on there
6: okay so i think to build a picture to start with perhaps we might be best off to work out what brake magic is and how long it's been around and what it you know what, what we're actually uh, talking about when we talk about brake magic okay so Brake magic has been around since the start of the hybrid era. Uh, that is because of the brake by wire systems that are on the car. And that means that the engineers can create different maps that obviously control the level of brake bias that is not only going front to rear, but also the bias between what's going on with um, the, the hybrid system. So you can obviously do some some clever things in how you control all of that, but. Um, With brake magic engaged, effectively what you do is shift a huge amount of the braking uh, performance forward in the car. And in terms of what Mercedes used Brake Magic for, is to keep or try to increase the amount of tyre temperature on the front tyres. So effectively what they've done, or Lewis Hamilton has done in this case, on the way to the restart is he's used Brake Magic in order that he can get the front tyres piping hot, ready to go into Turn 1. And that's why we saw the brake smoking. That wasn't something that was, you know, not designed to be in that situation. Uh, Lewis wanted that situation. He wanted the brakes almost on fire, the, the as much energy going into those front tyres as possible so that when he got to Turn 1, he had got a huge amount of grip because, as we know, the tyres this year are very difficult to get in that window for the, the front end of the car. and Obviously, everybody changed tyres during the red flag period, so we're on fresh tyres uh, rather than the ones that have been cycled through throughout the race. Now, in the piece that I did post um, Grand Prix, I did mention the fact that in my eyes, it would be about 90 percent forward on the brake bias. Um, but obviously, since then, there's been people looking at the footage and I was pretty accurate. Eighty six point five percent is what uh, the brake bias was on the front end and usually the drivers have their brake bias somewhere between sort of 50 to 60 percent, depending on the corner and the the circuit characteristics Um, if you go back and watch some of Rosberg's laps for argument's sake when he was driving the Mercedes you'll see that on some of his qualifying laps he was changing the brake bias on pretty much every single corner to try and get that absolute maximum performance out of the car. And that's essentially what Lewis was trying to do, is get performance from the car, so that when he arrived in Turn 1, he could take the lead away from Perez. Unfortunately, what has, has happened is, on the restart, he has disengaged Brake Magic. Um, he's then launched the car, and unfortunately, he's then clipped the button that engages Brake Magic again as he's trying to overtake Perez. And that happened because of the way that they were jinking around on the straight, apparently. If you actually listen to the radio call between him and Bono at the end of the race, he describes it, Bono this is, as Lewis having clipped the button on the upshift. So that indicates that obviously the button is in the realms of where Hamilton's hands would be on the steering wheel for the upshift. Now, Mercedes haven't exactly been opaque in terms of where the brake magic button is in the past because you know it's not something that they want to effectively give away to their rivals, although all of the teams have some version of brake magic on their cars. Um, however, I think what we will see... Uh, Obviously, we're pre-recording this segment, but what I think we will see is that Mercedes will be a little bit more opaque when they do their debrief midweek and just let people understand what actually and where actually that is on the steering wheel. I think, though, that where... Lewis has had the problem, perhaps his, his engagement of the clutch system during his start, because and I'm sure you've seen this, Matt, from his onboards. He has a very different way of holding the steering wheel uh, when he, he he does his launches and, and has his left hand in the top corner of the uh, steering wheel whilst he balances the clutch with, he, with his uh, right hand uh, because he has a different setup on the back of the steering wheel to Bottas in that respect as well.
1: Right. Uh, I have actually seen that because you were correct. I did go back and watch a few times, although I was watching because they said it was a a lever and I was looking at his wheel and I didn't see any, but I I did see a picture tweeted out with a rotary that says brake magic. I assume that's for setting exactly what and how much you want. And then the button engages it for the driver. But my question about that over the top, Thing is, it does look like it, but usually upshifts are on the opposite side. They're usually right-handed. So, is is this perhaps an ambidextrous brake magic button? And having gotten that one question in, I will now shoehorn my famous second question in. If I'm Mercedes and I want to fix this, am I redesigning the button that I use to do this and where it's placed, or am I looking at potentially a, a software solution whereby? If the car is in launch mode, brake magic simply cannot be engaged.
6: Okay, so first of all, brake balance on the steering wheel has multi-functions. There's not a single button that controls the brake balance or the brake bias. So you have two buttons for up and down. You have the brake balance rotary, and you also have a a rotary called B mig which is brake migration and that's to do with the way in which that the hybrid system works with the the brake balance so it's an adjustability setting for the drivers on top of that you've then got this fifth control which is the brake magic now in my opinion having studied the footage I'm sure as I said we will have more information come midweek about Brake Magic perhaps Mercedes will finally reveal all in their debrief Um, but for me it perhaps is what Lewis is doing with his top with his left hand on the top end of the left hand side of the steering wheel as we look at the steering wheel um, is that he's actually holding um, that button in if you look on the back of the Mercedes wheel, you will see at the top there are two buttons in in the top corners, um, and then you've also got the obviously the clutch paddles and uh, the up and down shift paddles. Uh, I believe that in that top left hand corner, he's holding that brake magic button as a way of holding the car against the clutch, perhaps using it as a way of. Effectively using a handbrake. Um, And then you obviously come off of that to disengage the brake magic, effectively disengage the handbrake and release the clutch. So it could be a a sort of tactic that Mercedes and Hamilton himself have come up with to enable him to get a better launch so that he can hold the clutch against the car. Um, But as I say, I think we'll get more information on this throughout the course of the next few days.
1: Okay. Well, I appreciate you taking the time. And for anyone who needs a visual stimulation to go along with that exquisite audio description, I believe there was a very nice picture published in one of the articles that Motorsport did about that. And I'm not sure if you've retweeted it yourself or not, but it should be pretty easy to find.
6: I have, and there are a couple of images in there. I worked pretty hard to find all the steering wheel images in the wake of, obviously, Mercedes issue. And there's more actually available if you go to the F1 gallery uh, to look at the, the steering wheel itself.
1: Okay. Well, I'll tell you what. I know a lot of people were very excited to see the Titanic battle between Hamilton and Verstappen for the championship. But I actually kind of found myself a bit disappointed because the Titanic struggle I was really looking forward to was that between Red Bull and Mercedes about the bendy wings. We had Wolf threatening protests aplenty. We had Horner tossing it back in his face. And at the end of the day, it was a nothing burger. No one complained about anything. Nothing really happened. And so I say boo, but I assume you can tell us a little bit more about why exactly nothing happened and what did go on instead.
6: Yeah, so basically, um, there's a couple of things that played out during the Azerbaijan Grand Prix weekend. The first one being that Uh, the FIA asked for all of the teams to install some dots on their rear wing. There's 12 dots on each of the rear wings now and they're using that as a reference point to be able to understand from the rear-facing camera what all of the teams are doing in terms of the flexibility of the rear wing. So that's going to give them a baseline going into the French Grand Prix where obviously the new rules come into play. So I think a lot of the teams perhaps thought, there's no point us protesting here because the FIA are actually being pretty proactive in what they're doing. Um, I mean, obviously if the results had a swung one way or another in one or another's favour in terms of the driver's championship, then perhaps we might be thinking otherwise, but I don't believe that there was actually ever going to be a protest um, after a certain point, because it just became obvious that the FIA have been pre- pretty proactive um, in terms of trying to deal with this situation.
1: Okay, but that said, we didn't see the bendy wing on the Red Bull. So is that Mercedes winning, or is that or is that Red Bull winning? I mean, I mean, it's they, they seem to have the winning car. So, so did they just have Mercedes chasing their tail for a couple of weeks for their own amusement, or is Mercedes the secret victor here?
6: Well, I think that's a bit of a misnomer because we did see what I would classify as a bendy wing on both cars. Um, You have to remember that the straight in Baku Baku is exceptionally long, one of the longest straights that we see on the calendar. So effectively, Red Bull bought a new rear wing specification for Baku, um, which stripped some of the downforce off the rear wing itself because it didn't have a gurney strip on the trailing edge and they also trimmed some of the rear edge off the top flap as well they also installed new end plates which means that the vortices that are created at the wing tip are less aggressive with that particular wing spec so in other words they were doing things differently it's a bit of an apples and oranges scenario because we haven't got the same wings as we had before And that's the same if you look on the other side of the the fence, which I'm sure we'll get to a little bit later on as well, is that Mercedes had very different specification wings on their two cars. So, you know, you're kind of comparing different things to what we've had in the past uh, alongside the fact that we've you know got new tests incoming and they're trying to get to a point whereby um, they will be compliant with those tests uh, for the French Grand Prix.
1: OK, so what you're essentially saying is that the wings themselves were fundamentally different because all the teams know the tests are coming and then they're they are in the process of development to pass the new test. So I guess you could sort of call that a Mercedes win, except for at the end of the day, uh, the Red Bull seemed like it was the faster car during the race. Now, you said these will be ready for Paul Ricard. I have one more question that I do want to ask about this. Horner explicitly mentioned front wings. I assume we didn't see any front wing dots, but we we know from footage we've seen in the past that the front wings are well pretty flexy too. Do you expect perhaps an updated test for the front wings as well going into the 22 season?
6: I, I think the, the there's a very different discussion topic there because the 22 regs have a different set of parameters anyway because obviously we've got different designs to the the, the wings themselves on top of that the test the load tests etc are different for the 22 cars so uh, as i've mentioned in the past i think we've got a situation here where the perhaps the fia have been trying to pad the situation out knowing that they were kind of on the back foot but didn't want to make wholesale changes because of the cost cap and the implications that has to everybody in terms of the development going towards the end of this season and obviously the impact that then that has on next season and so I think we're in a situation where the front wing test will probably won't be adjusted for 21 because of that, those um, criteria for, for the cost cap um and we've got new tests and new obviously a new car in its totality coming for 22 anyway
1: okay so uh let's move on a bit we know that and to my surprise that the power unit you got is the power unit you got this season and yet i see on twitter um that honda who seemed like they already brought up pretty big upgrade to the whole season, is bringing an upgrade to Paul Ricard. How is this possible? I thought it was against the rule.
6: Yeah, but Matt, don't you remember what used to happen in the V8 era when the V8s were frozen and suddenly every single Grand Prix, somebody had a reliability upgrade. So uh, if you can shoehorn a performance upgrade alongside your reliability upgrade, then you can kind of get around the fact that you're bringing a performance upgrade because... The essential part of that upgrade is for reliability purposes, which we understand that Honda have actually had the power unit cranked down a little bit in the opening phase of the season to be able to allow them to get the mileage that they needed to get to this reliability upgrade that's incoming for the French Grand Prix.
1: Okay, so hang on a second. What you're telling me is Honda has been fighting with one hand behind its back, and there is even more power to come from that unit. And if that's the case I mean, where are they relative to Mercedes? Are they pushing them, or do you think maybe they've surpassed them at this point?
6: I wouldn't suggest that Honda have surpassed Mercedes, and I don't think they will do even with the supposed upgrade that's coming for the French Grand Prix. I think they've got much, much closer than anybody has actually achieved during the hybrid era, except for the, <coughs> the 2019 Ferrari engine, um, which we have to say no more about. Um the Honda power unit is far and beyond the ability that I think most people thought that the Japanese manufacturer would be able to get to when they arrived back in the sport. And I think we remember them having, you know, an, a new power unit at every single race and suddenly they've got to a point, And we've talked about this in the past, Matt, where we thought that they would get to this point. It was just how long it would take. But unfortunately for them, they're withdrawing from the sport at the end of the season and they're not going to see the full spoils of what they've been able to achieve. Uh, on top of that you have to remember that the amount of changes that they made this season to their power unit going into this season I think they're inevitably going to come across reliability issues because fundamentally they've changed a huge swathe of parts on the car, uh, the, the, the power unit even, um, to, to be able to maximize performance from the the changes in in the regulations um that occurred last season and a specification that they were kind of trying to hold over for 2022 it's kind of been brought forward one stage to to get them to where they are for this season
1: right okay so that makes sense fundamentally there were some reliability issues they have fixed the reliability issues and just very conveniently that will allow them to run the engine higher, hotter, and longer than they previously were able to. That's sort of fascinating. But you know what's really fascinating?
6: What's that? Tires. Yeah, well, they're the black art of motorsports.
1: They are, and they were center stage at the last race, but not in the good, happy Pirelli PR marketing guys kind of way, but in the unfortunate, we're going to have to explain this to the world sort of way. So you saw, I assume, the race. You saw the failures. I'm going to ask sort of, what have you heard about them? Do you know when Pirelli is going to be able to drop sort of an official explanation to us? And last of all, Verstappen was very skeptical right off the bat. The moment Pirelli said, well, you know, we're going to go with, we think it was probably debris based on what we've seen so far and he immediately seemed to sort of imply that oh uh, they always just say that no matter what the real cause is does he ha- is there any validity to that in your opinion i mean is he just suffered more than his fair share of tire related race ending issues so he's just got a complex so to speak or 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 is there or, or do you think probably might well you know given a choice of explaining a 50-50 thing way a or way b they're going to go with the way that makes them look less bad, which is sort of also understandable.
6: I think there's a multitude of scenarios unfolding uh, before our very eyes as usual. I think one of the big things is that we have to remember how much the cars have changed uh, since the start of 2020 uh, because of the regulation changes that came in for 2021. We also then got a new set of tires uh, for this season and the downforce levels, I think, are beyond where anybody expected the teams to get based on how much downforce was technically taken away from them. And so, you know, we're in a situation where the tyres are being pushed to their limits once more. We saw what happened at Silverstone last year uh, in that very scenario where the tyres were beyond uh, their capacity and, um, I do think it is an unfortunate situation that we find ourselves in again from a PR point of view for Pirelli because they're always the bad guy. In everybody's playbook, Pirelli have always done wrong. However, I always air back to 2013 and Silverstone when the teams were lumping on Pirelli as if everything was their fault. However, it was not their fault. The teams were tyre swapping, i.e., They were putting tyres that were designated for one side of the car on the opposite side of the car. And ever since that point, you know, you have to think about how are the teams operating beyond the scope of what Pirelli intend for the tyres. And, you know, they're always trying to find performance, no matter how far they have to stretch their look. We only have to look at flexi-wings in that scenario. However, I do think that this will come back as a debris issue. Um, I uh, you know, Lewis's tire was found to have I think it was a six or seven centimeter slit in in the tire, um and he was lucky not to be in the same situation that we already had two tires fail at as well. however I, I don't know how how, how many other tires are, 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 were in that situation, and I think Pirelli will probably take a little time to try to investigate and find out exactly the root cause of this problem. Um, in the past, they've blamed curbs. Um, We've had debris problems as well in the past. You know, at the end of the day, they are the design and a product that has to work at some pretty intense um, speeds and loads. And unfortunately, we are ending up in a situation where we've got tyres going and failing. But, you know, there's there's, there's sort of a a lot of things that can go on to cause that situation. Um, and, And that's... Unfortunately, where Pirelli find themselves in the middle of a, a bit of a an argument with drivers who think that you know X or Y is happening, and perhaps it's not. Um, for me, I, I think that we'll be back in a situation where it's a debris problem again.
1: Okay, well, I have to say that was um, sort of my initial inclination, mostly for the following reason: that pretty much everybody was on the same tire stent with the same tire and we saw stroll and the first stent fail. And then we saw max in the second stint, but the eight or nine other drivers that were on the same lap or even later laps did not have a failure issue. Whereas in the past, like you mentioned uh, in 13, you saw five or six cars go out and that was clearly a tire failure issue. Although as you rightly note, teams were running uh, tires backwards, on the wrong side fully against what pirelli had told them to do so so i don't think we can blame pirelli in the same way it would be if tires just like started doing uh what was it 2005 indianapolis i forget which one it was
6: it was yes i I also I, i also think that it's important to remember that this is the most unloaded tire as well it's not the one that takes all the stress and so for me that suggests that there's an outside force involved rather than something that's directly impacted the the tire uh, uh, to cause the failure.
1: Okay, so let's go on and let's have a brief discussion about Valtteri Bottas. Now, I I apologize to people who listen to our Sunday show already cuz I already berated everyone about this. But I'm increasingly baffled and I think Botas is too, by his inability to make these tires work to the point where he said, either there's a problem with my car or it was the tires. And yet when I listen to Mercedes and his race engineer in the race, they seem to have no answers for him whatsoever about this. So has Mercedes gone and done that thing that we always accuse Red Bull of doing, essentially designing a car that only one driver can drive? Are, are we there? Because, I mean, you can't say Botas is a terrible driver. He may not be doing the job Mercedes wants him to do right now, but is that entirely down to him, or is it something down to their engineering and design for this season's regulations?
6: Yeah, I mean, I, again, I think it it does hark back to the, the change in regulations and how that has an impact on the way in which the car must be driven. Um, I think it's very important to remember that we've got a different tyre construction and a different tyre at the front, uh, which has changed the way in which you have to drive the car to get the heat into the front tyres. The exact reason why Hamilton did what he did at the at the restart to get that temperature fired into, into the front tyre to get it to work straight away. Um, so, yes, obviously Valtteri is having a problem with the W12 this year in, in trying to get the performance from it. Um, I think that was evident right from the start. Uh, if you look back in Bahrain when uh, testing when they were having trouble with the car in general, um, I think the car has a very narrow operating window. So every time they go to a circuit, they are struggling to find the sweet spots you see that for free practice because they're trying more and more things every single race weekend to try to unlock that performance and that is not a trait that we've seen from Mercedes in the past they've usually arrived they've found the sweet spot and then they just crank it on the performance and they don't seem able to do that this year they they're just struggling to get to that very narrow window that the tire operates within so much to the point that they split their drivers this weekend happened in Porto Mayo, but again this weekend, Valtteri Bottas was on the high downforce rear wing, Lewis Hamilton was on the lower downforce rear wing. And it appears that Hamilton found what he needed to in FP3 to suggest that they were going to get the performance they needed from the lower downforce rear wing. At that point, they're kind of locked in and can't change Bottas, who's decided earlier on that he's sticking with the high downforce rear wing and he just cannot get the front to rear balance on the tires that's the fundamental problem it's a bit of a vicious circle because you get the temperature in the front tires but you lose it from the rear tires and so on and so forth it's what i tend to call a goldilocks problem you know it it's a bit too hot it's a bit too cold but can i really find the the one in the middle
1: okay so having said that I mean, how much are we blaming Valtteri for this? How much are we blaming Mercedes for this? Just, you know, just ballpark it for me because he's coming under increasing amounts of criticism. And part of me is like, well, entirely justified criticism. because like. But on the other hand, I realize that the person he's being compared to is, you know, arguably the best, most complete driver on the grid at this point in time. So that's quite a comparison to be making. Would anybody else in that seat be having the same problems? I guess that's what I'm asking.
6: Yeah, well, we only have to look across the, the grid to Red Bull to find that exact answer. They have searched for this issue for a number of years because they have had a car that is very much in the li- the same line as what we're seeing from the W12 this year in as much as that one driver seems to be able to find that narrow sweet spot where they can get the performance from it and the other driver just struggles around for most of the weekend and occasionally manages to find the performance they need luckily for Valtteri his qualifying pace is always pretty good So he always finds himself in a relatively good position from a qualifying standpoint. If we look at Portimao, for example, he found that sweet spot in qualifying. But the problem was that that sweet spot for qualifying meant that he overdrove the tyres during the race and started to slide back into the clutches of the other two drivers. And so, like I say, I think it is more to do with having a very narrow operating window for this car, which has been driven by the factors of the 2021 regulation changes and also obviously the changes to the tyres. Valtteri isn't a bad driver. There's no two ways about it. You don't win races. You don't put the car on pole for absolutely no reason. He is a top-line driver. It's just that he's not perhaps at the absolute level that Lewis Hamilton is. We have to remember he's a seven-time world champion and has straddled many, many regulation changes uh, that's the big difference between the quality of a driver of Hamilton who's done it across, de- you know, a decade or more versus a driver that is, you know, he- he's very good on his day, but hasn't perhaps got the car underneath him for the race day as uh, the race day as well.
1: Okay. So um, as we start to run short of minutes, I'm going to segue off of that and say, speaking of drivers like that. It came to my attention that Sebastian Vettel had a pretty good weekend. And he'd had a pretty good weekend at the last race. And all of a sudden, Aston, who who looked like, oh, you know, sort of in that Alpine, sort of second middle of the midfield battle. Suddenly, they look very, very good. Was it just track specific? This is a particular track that suits them. Have they figured out how their car works to the point where they can actually set it up for their drivers? Or did they just finally make the parts that work with a concept that they've chosen? And and so I, if you have any insight on that, I'd be very curious to hear your thoughts.
6: So again, I think it's a bit of all of those those bits and pieces put together. Uh, very much that obviously all of the Mercedes and Ferrari powered teams took new power units for Baku. So, which means that they obviously have more tools at their disposal in terms of straight line speed, uh, just general performance around the lap because the parts aren't ageing out. So obviously, you know, it's the same as anything, isn't it? When you get something brand new, it always feels that much better once it's first fitted to the to the car or, or whatever discipline you're, you're currently in. Um, on top of that, I think that, Aston Martin have kind of settled down into a pattern. They started the season a little bit erratic in terms of bringing parts to the car and trying to close that deficit on the changes for 2021. They've plowed a huge amount of resource into the car in the opening phase of the season to try to close that gap. And I think that was always their intention, um, but it does lead to distraction because You have so much to understand to unlock that performance. And if something doesn't quite work and you don't understand why it works, then you're kind of backpedaling to try to find out why and what can you do to resolve that problem. So to me, they seem to have found more of a sweet spot in terms of the performance of the aerodynamic map and also obviously the way in which that that works with the car in general. On top of that, you have to remember that Sebastian Vettel moved from a Ferrari-powered car to a Mercedes-powered car. And there's a lot of different nuance between the way in which that those power units operate. And so that means that, obviously, he had a lot to learn when he moved into the Aston Martin seat as well.
1: Excellent. Well, well thanks for that. And before we officially check out, I, I always like talking to you because you always see things that don't get reported. You always have a thing or a development that everybody else has missed, but you've seen. So I'm just going to ask, like what has grabbed your attention over the course of this last race weekend, or where should we be looking that we're not right now?
6: Oh, well, it's a lot of small things, isn't it? Uh, Essentially. I think the, the, the interesting things, obviously that you saw in Baku were the wing levels, uh, the differences between high and low downforce setups. Um, There was an, Tiny, tiny difference between Perez and Verstappen's rear wing um, that we that we noticed, um, which basically is a, a small few millimeters trimmed off the the top flap, just to take away a little downforce and a little more drag. Obviously, Max a little bit more comfortable with a, a slightly looser rear end in the uh, slower sections of the track, but that enabled him to obviously try and push on down the straights, uh, and then. Aston Martin, again, we just discussed, obviously, them bringing updates in the past, but they did have a small update for uh, Baku, which was only on Stroll's car. Uh, unfortunately, he was the one that didn't get the result, but he had the updates. And he had a new fairing on the halo. Um, they've taken away the boomerang winglets and replaced it with a couple of uh, upstand fins. And also they've changed the uh, the, wir- the wing mirror mountings Um which have now the serrated edge, a bit like Mercedes, um, which you would expect given obviously the way in which the, those two cars uh, follow each other in terms of development. But there's always lots and lots of tiny details to to pay attention to. And as you know, I try to put that out there as, as much as I can uh, through social media and obviously uh, on, on my uh, articles with motorsport.
1: Well, you you are jumping the gun here because I was just about to ask where can all of our listeners find you.
6: Well, as usual as I just mentioned the best place to find me is on Twitter uh, @summersf1 um or obviously my work over on motorsport.com as well.
1: And don't forget uh, summersf1.co.uk, which I can almost barely remember at my advanced age.
6: Yes, unfortunately I haven't really updated the the blog of late because I've got so much other work going on, but uh, it is something that I'm trying to think about uh, for the end of the season with perhaps a a big review of all of the updates that we've seen throughout the season.
1: Well, I can't wait to see that. Um, And in the meantime, thanks for stopping by and I hope you'll come back soon. Of course I
6: will, and thanks for having me.
1: As always, we'll talk soon. So there is
3: a new initiative in the world of Formula One. As you're probably aware, Sebastian Vettel is a strong advocate for LGBTQ rights and visibility. To help me speak on that subject is Chris Stevens. Hello, Chris. Hey, Spanners. Hey, uh, so this Racing Pride initiative from Aston Martin, what do you know about it?
7: Uh, Well, Racing Pride was set up a few years ago to kind of just push the the LGBT visibility within motorsport. There aren't all too many examples of LGBT people within motorsport, be that drivers or people who work for the team or marshals, stewards, you know, the full works. And what they do is to, to help bring those people to the centre stage.
3: So I think it's a case of being able to say, hello, I am part of that community and I want to be able to talk about it without coming under you know, coming under threat from abusive people or homophobic people, and if I do, because we've done it as part of this incentive, I guess this initiative incentive, uh, I can come to you and and talk to you about it instead of having to hide or feel afraid.
7: Uh, exactly, it's it's a community thing, and you know, community is a real buzzword uh, around LGBT because you know there's strength in numbers.
3: And you are an openly bisexual ex-journalist, and you are currently a PR person within motorsport. I think that is uh, uh, the the right. It's right that you're openly out and openly bisexual, but I can't imagine that everyone would be comfortable being open about it in that kind of environment that you've worked in.
7: No, uh, absolutely not, and with good reason. Um, the idea of of coming out is very very scary um, to even just just anyone, let alone in the the macho world of, My kid's of motorsport. And you know the the statistics kind of back it up. You know we we live in a world where people are still killed for their sexuality, even here in the civilized world. A fifth of LGBT people in this country are the victim of a hate crime um, every year. That's almost fifteen thousand people and so uh, the one statistic that really caught my eye is that one in 10 people who attend a sporting event uh, in 2019 experienced discrimination in the uk and sport is you know it's it's big man macho time and the stereotypical macho time. gay man is yeah. is, a, is a camp man a physically weak man and the two never seem to kind of gel together and the reality of course is that's total rubbish
3: There is definitely still that stereotype that a homosexual man will somehow have less of the traditionally, um, Mm. male traits that need you, that you need to be a good athlete, to be a brave driver. But statistically, there must be gay drivers, gay mechanics, bisexual pit gun people. Um, and they, I guess, are still feeling a pressure to, to hide. Who they really are and and you could say, "Well, no big deal, that you don't talk about your sexuality at work, and therefore you get left alone but the the point of that that sort of upsets me is that you know they're not bringing their partners maybe to the work event, they can't just join in normal conversations, they're being denied just basic everyday slices of life that we take for granted,
7: exactly, you know people talking about their relationships you don't want to talk about your relationship because it's, you think it's going to make people uncomfortable or you think people are going to treat you differently because of it. Is it any wonder that Gareth Thomas didn't come out as gay for so long while he was playing rugby? The prime motorsport example is Danny Watts, a two-time class winner at Le Mans, who didn't come out until after yes. he had retired. And he said, because you, you feel like you have to hide it within motorsport because it's a very masculine sport. That was his
3: quote. And wasn't there some concern over sponsorships as well, that it would affect his his backing and his funding to race?
7: Uh, Perhaps it it can do. I've never heard Mm. that specifically.
3: Sure. But if we are kind of open and somebody does come out and then there's a correlation where you then see the the sponsorship and funding has gone down, at least they can point to a graph and say, well, this is where I came out and this is where my funding dried up and we can kind of be a bit more open about it.
7: Exactly. I mean, I think people think that motorsport doesn't have uh, an, an issue with sexuality, and the truth is, how can we possibly know that when people are too afraid to be themselves?
3: Yeah. Uh, no. I look the from a uh, what what am I called? What is my in that? thing i'm a sexual straight whatever you want it was like a cisgendered male i think is that what i am oh yes yeah a a straight cisgender male right there we go so (laughs) having that kind of privilege of never having to worry about bringing my wife to an event or talk about my relationships it can be very hard for me to to care and i'll admit whilst i hope i've never been homophobic i don't think i've been an ally I don't think I've been an ally. That face you made implied that I have sometimes <laughs> been. No, no, I was basically, no, you haven't. You're fine. You're not really. But I tell but, you what, I may have, through, um, through like a lack of understanding, been dismissive of the challenges of the LGBT community in the past. Certainly, for you know, the, the example that will haunt me for the rest of my life is my cousin not bringing his boyfriend to our wedding you know they were in a long-term committed relationship and because of the homophobic element in my family i didn't invite not not that i didn't invite him but he didn't feel comfortable to come whereas i should have told everyone else to bog off and made sure they came to the wedding so what does being an ally involve if one would be a motorsport fan and make our sport inclusive to people in the lgbtq community like we're trying to do with uh, people of color and like we tried to do with women so that there were no grid girls making them feel uncomfortable what can we do to be good allies to that community
7: i i think a, a simple we support you message can go a really long way and it's essentially what aston martin is, has done here and you know if they do things you know like they're, they're saying they're going to put like a pride flag on the car for france uh for example, um, just stuff like that. I mean, Sebastian Bell had a, a rainbow helmet for a couple yeah. of races. I can't remember when. Um, last yeah, last season. season yeah. Yeah. But seeing a formula one team do that in particular, is just an incredible feeling because I think a, a lot of straight people, they don't understand it because no one's ever battered an eyelid at who they love. And they've never had to explain themselves to their family and their friends for their you know the way they live their life so a simple we support you goes a really really long way
3: yeah so you can't hide being black you can't hide being a woman but you can hide your sexuality which means that for straight people like me we have had the problem solved for us because the hostile environment has made people hide And so we've not actually had to face up to how we would react in those situations and this is wonderful from Aston Martin to just get the conversation going. Sebastian Vettel has been an open ally uh, of the community as well. What happens when we go to Saudi Arabia, a country in which homosexuality Mm. is a crime? What happens? How do we support the team members? Because there will be gay team members going to a country where it's illegal to be gay. Uh, do Do those flags still stay on the cars? Or does everybody shut up and cower?
7: Well, this is not the first race that's going to be held in a in a country where being being gay is illegal, and it's the number one question I saw when Aston Martin made this announcement. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, what you're suddenly going to shut up when you go to to Saudi, and this is all going to be over? The short answer is, we really don't know. Um, I mean, they say that they should boycott the race which is a ridiculous thing for me because what you are then doing is taking the people who are sending out this message and then not taking it to a place where it needs to be heard more than here, really, when you think about it, in the grand scheme of things. So I don't know what's going to happen when they race there, if they're going to be allowed to run a pride flag yeah. on that
3: car or whatever. If they're not, it's not Aston Martin's fault. So I'm slightly... I think I'm slightly misaligned to you. Here here would be my thinking. Not that I have any power or say. I think you're right. If we can go there and race and show those pride flags, not just to make a point, but do the normal things that they would want to do, Sebastian Vettel is free to wear his pride flag, then then you can go and race. You, You can make that message. If people who are openly gay or bisexual or trans in the teams have to go through special measures to hide it. If they're told, don't be, you dress up as a boy to feel so everyone feels more comfortable or whatever you do, don't talk about being gay or it's best if you stay in the hotel when everybody else is out. If that kind of thing happens, then I would say, Chris, I would go a bit further and say, if that's the case, you should think about not hosting your your race there because otherwise we race as one is absolutely useless. If one person is in the hotel room afraid, then you're not racing as one.
7: Yeah, absolutely. I I would love to hear some examples of, uh, you know, places, other countries Mm. where they've had similar issues and and what measures they've had to go for. It could be that no one's batting an eyelid. at it because i think when you're at a racetrack it's very you know enclosed and it's very isolated from the rest of um the actual country and they you know they certain rules apply at the racetrack that don't apply to the rest of the country um a lot of the time not just in formula one and a lot of other like global championships and sporting events as well Um, so yeah i would love to to hear some stories from people who
3: actually you know go and do this I, w- I would be really interested on people's take on the conversation we've had. Obviously, Chris is much more informed <laughs> about the topic <laughs> and you can see like the discomfort on my face because I'm trying to make sure I say the right phrases and be as uh, inclusive and PC as possible because I just don't have that kind of wealth of experience and background in making sure I say the right thing. So if, if you think I've said anything wrong, I'm happy to listen to it. Spanners at net, And I think the message from... Uh, missed apex to the lgbt community would be we support you we don't necessarily know how you can tell us how and uh, we'll do whatever we we can um but it hurts me that there are members of our racing community that don't get to enjoy the same freedoms that that we do chris stevens thank you so much for your time i appreciate you speaking on what could potentially be a difficult subject Uh, go and follow chris at chris on racing on twitter chris thank you very much thanks for Hi, everyone. Well, that kind of ends the F1-y bit of the show. So I just wanted to do a little bit of listener feedback. But don't worry, if you tune out now, you won't miss anything. We'll see you back again for the French Grand Prix. And we've got a really exciting series of races coming up. So we've got a triple header, the French Grand Prix and two Austria Grand Prix. So two races at the Red Bull Ring. And uh, I want to make it a Festival of F1 and podcasting here at Missed Apex Podcast. So I'm hoping that every single member of the Missed Apex crew will get involved and be on one of the shows over that triple header. And I'm planning to do a little shorter Tuesday stream as well, uh, where we catch up on the news. Because sometimes when we do the race review on a Sunday, we don't pick everything up and we get frustrated on the Monday. We go, oh, if only, if only that bit of information had come out you know, before Monday morning. So that's what we'll do. We'll do the race reviews, catch up sometime midweek, I think Tuesdays at the moment, and uh, and hopefully get all of your Miss Apex friends involved. I hope you've not minded this kind of pre-record. Um, since Miss Apex has become a very steady part of my life um, and the weekends get very busy for me, it is nice to be able to do some pre-records so that I can, as I hopefully am right now, this second as you're watching this, on a beach somewhere in Essex, so we'll we'll learn our lessons, we'll improve. We'd love your feedback on whether these pre-recorded segments bringing a bunch of different people in and doing a bunch of different segments works for you. Uh, feedback at mistapex.net and then me and Matt are spanners or Matt at mistapex.net as well. So just a bit of feedback then. Uh, thank you so much for your emails. I have a confession to make. I don't... Read or write so good and my IT skills are very, very poor. So when I get a bunch of emails or a long email, I do get like a wave of like, oh my God, it's a wall of text. And I've got to respond in kind by replying with equal grace, these wonderfully written emails. So sometimes I will put them off, but I I do read it. It's just that sometimes I get a bit like, ah, how do I reply? And if I reply back, thanks for the email, that is code for me saying I have read it, I have absorbed it, I understand it, and I appreciate it. Because your emails really do keep us going. Your emails, DMs, kind tweets, sharing the podcast. I'll share a little bit more about that in a second. But I will say thanks. thank you to uh, Ron Spars, who says, uh, Dear Mr. Spanners, no need to be so formal. Uh, it, I'm a longtime fan of your podcast ever since... You invited Uncle Joe, and finally I found out I had mispronounced pronounced his name for a decade, Joe Saywood. So he says Saywood, S-A-Y-W-O-O-D. He's wrong. It's uh, it's Saywood. But, you know, he can say his name wrong if he wants to. I decided to email you when I saw your tweet about 12,500 people joining the live stream. Yeah, that was amazing. That that was for the Monaco Grand Prix, I and mean, it, it, it shows that a lot of the F1 marketing goes to Monaco. Uh, I hope a lot of those people who tuned in for the Monaco Grand Prix stay around and looking at the statistics from the Baku race, it does look like a lot of those new people hung around so that's been a a lovely welcome boost for us. Uh, Then I read your tweet about the Dutch commentary. Oh yeah, I've seen the Dutch commentary for the first time. I'm going to say the name wrong so I won't try and guess but there's the guy who's been the, the main Dutch commentator for ages. Mol? Something Olaf more. and he's like, he's like, I mean, he's a personality. But when uh, when Verstappen crashed out, he didn't hide. He's like, nay, nay, nay. He was really, really emotional about it. And then when Hamilton, when Hamilton went off, he's like laughing. He's like fully laughing. He's like, oh, you dumb, dumb. Oh, there you go. Boom, boom, tickety boom, bye, 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 ta, ta. And it's like, wow. That's the, the actual Dutch commentary. Uh, yeah, so uh, he says, as a Dutch guy, I agree with you. Because I just said, hey, if that's the level of the Dutch national commentary, no wonder, you know, a lot of the Dutch fans are a little bit passionate and get behind their driver in a certain way. I don't think there's anything against that. People say you shouldn't, shouldn't just support your country's driver. Nah, it's sport. The default is support the local sports person. You don't have to be an idiot about it, but that's a nice default. It's fine. I was born in Colchester, so I'm a Colchester United fan. I I was lucky that it just so happens Colchester United are the greatest football team the world has ever seen. But I could have been born somewhere else. And even if I had been born in Gillingham, I would have probably been saying, oh, they're the greatest football team ever. It's just a nice default. And they're your team. You're the good guys. Everyone else is the enemy. That's just sport. Don't take it so seriously. Um, You have to realise 90% of the people... I think he means in Holland. Are just watching because a Dutch guy is racing. The commentator and after show are completely catered towards that audience. I can understand that. Every sporting nation, when they get someone who's really good in a particular sport, a bunch of people go in and support that. And maybe they don't initially have like a more nuanced understanding, especially if there's partisan commentary, like I saw on the Dutch TV. Uh, link And I didn't watch the whole race, so you tell me if that was unrepresentative. At Spanners Ready, I shared the clip. If, if you go, oh no, he's not normally like that, he's normally s- super chill, then that's fine, I'm listening. Um, but yeah, you know, people wade into it, and it takes time, maybe for those fans who find it n- n- brand new, to, I don't know, develop a nuance, or find other people in the sport that they like, for example. Um, we have the same, completely the same issue with Lewis Hamilton fans. So I'm not this is not like an anti-Dutch thing. Exactly the same thing with just rabid Lewis Hamilton fans where everybody else is the enemy and only Lewis Hamilton is is a viable candidate for deity status in F1. And as much as we get criticized for being Hamilton fans, we have criticized Hamilton for every mistake. We expect more from Hamilton. We expect more from the people that we support. Look at the last race review. Perez picked up his first win for Red Bull, and I'm sitting there lingering on poor grid start, you know, uh, bad Saturday, because I want more. That's that's sporting fandom for you. Casper also writes in, hey, Spanners and team, normally I never provide any feedback to any of the podcasts, but I just want to say I enjoy the shows. But for a while, I feel the need to share my view on some of the discussions as I'm enjoying the show a lot. On the Hamilton-Perez bias, oh, I didn't plan that. But it's talking about what we're talking about. It's not a bad thing. You can be passionate about it, and often it's meant as a joke. But by apologizing for it, you actually put more emphasis on it, allowing people to notice. Fair. Maybe I do. Maybe I should just have those biases and not talk about it. But I I like the fact that you can judge my reaction and my opinion, knowing that I go into a race hoping that Perez will do well, hoping that Hamilton could do well, hoping that, believe it or not, Grosjean as well. I was Grosjean and, and, and Magnussen fan um, as well. And then you can judge what I'm saying in that context. I think that's fine. Somebody on a YouTube comment was criticising me, and I said, "Well, who do you support?" He said, "Why?" Does, and they, they responded, "Why does that matter?" And I went, "Well, well, I just I I want to know. I want to put it in your comment in context." He goes, "No, I I want you to judge my comment on its own merits without knowing who I support." And I just I don't agree with that. It's a bit this disingenuous, isn't it? You, you can listen to some other outlets and some other broadcasters where you can see an unadmitted bias. And over time, when you realise that, oh, in every situation where, say, Vettel is involved or Stroll is involved, they happen to be anti that driver. And you go, "What? they've really got an issue with, with that driver. You can see it on the Sky Broadcast. There is one presenter who has a particular dislike for another driver. When it's easy, when it's a general thing, they always say that driver is good. But every single time there's a, could it have been their fault in a crash? Could it have been their fault in a wheel contact? They always subtly come down against. But that's an undeclared bias. You don't know. And I I would rather like just say, hey, I've got a problem with that driver or I'm a supporter of this driver. You can judge it in that context because it's fair and it's honest. And I encourage everyone on the panel to say who they support. It's not a problem in other sports. It's not a problem in football. For whatever reason, in F1, you're not supposed to say, that you are a fan of whoever. To be, and to be honest, it, it, it only ever really is an issue if you say you're a Hamilton fan. People don't tend to get grief for being a Leclerc fan or a, 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 a Vettel fan, for example. Thank you for your email, Casper. Joan Tobias says, Hi Spanners, I just wanted to say that I'm a relatively new F1 fan from the US, and you and Matt have really built a fun and informative programme. Thank you very much. And we've got one from Gerald DeWitt as well. I'm very sorry to read on Twitter the abuse you've received in previous days. It's, it's fine. It's been fun. Um, I, as a Dutchman, have been thoroughly enjoying your podcast for several years as an integral part of my F1 experience and hopefully for years to come. And there's also one from Daniel Ellis as well. Hello. I just wanted to thank you for producing such amazing content, even in the off-season. Thanks very much for that feedback. I'm going to try and get better at addressing it, replying, and also featuring it on the show as well. Um, it's important, the feedback that you've given me over the years. It, it really is important because when people find us, so let's say 100 people find us, I hope that 10 people will go, Oh, that's good. He's all- Yeah, he's all right. That's my jam. I will carry on. I will carry on listening. I will subscribe. And even if 90 people don't like it, it kind of doesn't matter because over time we build from those 10, 10 more, 10 more, 10 more. Sometimes it's been 10 people found us and we get one, one more, one more. That's how we've built our our audience. And I can be myself. When you're an independent podcast creator, you, could, you can and should be yourself and let the people who like that and appreciate that stay and let the people who find that irritating, which by my feedback is a few, then you go, you go find something else. It's free. If I was a Sky presenter... I would only turn up, uh, you know, two out of five spanners with my spannerisms. I would play it straight. And in fact, I am a mainstream broadcaster on a network and I service that platform when I'm a part of, of, of that network. So I speak, act, behave as somebody who has to appeal to a broader audience because, you know, those people are, say, for example, paying a subscription fee or paying a license fee. So you have to appeal to those people. But if you don't like me on Missed Apex Podcast, you've lost nothing. It's free. You just go and you just go and listen to For F1's sake podcast or or something like that. Where where it can kind of hurt is where we find 100 people, 10 people like it and hang around. Everyone else bogs off. But, but one person out of that 100 decides it's not enough to just not listen. They have to try and give me a kicking on the way out the door or leave a horrible iTunes review or something like that. And they that has the potential to eat at your confidence. I'm used to it over the years, but I got a bit upset this week because one of my panellists said the level of negativity we've had in the live stream, the YouTube comments, and on Twitter has made me, it's put me off doing the podcast. And that hurt. That really hurt. And that's why I reacted angrily from the Missed Apex account. And that's why we'll be doing a bit more of a, a bit more of a blanket ban hammer on negativity because the panel don't deserve to feel like that they're nice people honestly they all of them are nice people i only keep nice people around or people i think are nice people from my point of view over the years it can sap my confidence in what i'm doing if someone is saying you are doing it wrong you're bad and for six seven years now i've had a drumbeat of people telling me i will never have a career in presenting and media i will never build an audience with miss apex podcast because i do x y and z wrong or I don't do it like other people do it, or, you know, I'm bad. For whatever reason, for whatever thing they've got irritated with about me, they decide to write lecturing emails, DMs, tweets, telling me I'm doing it wrong. And the reason that I am able to have the confidence to go, actually, I think oh, I think we're doing something right, is because of, I would say it's, it's four figures, the amount of people at least, that have got in touch with emails, DMs, positive iTunes reviews, and I can wrap all of those around my forearm as just this shield of steel against people telling me that I should stop doing what I'm doing. I'm only continuing doing what I'm doing because of the support we get from from you guys. And so I just want to say thank you. I want to say thank you to everyone who's taken five minutes out of their day to write an email, write an iTunes review, send a, a nice tweet. Uh, you really have kept us going. So thank you very much. Um, I just want to address a couple of the common complaints I get uh, one is uh, interrupting people. So sometimes it can seem like I'm interrupting my panel. I never want that to be a case. Uh, But lag can be an issue for that, especially with Joe. So with Joe, we've just got enough lag that he will pause and I'll go, oh, he stopped talking now. I'll start talking. He'll continue. And then it looks like I've I've spoken over him. I do spend a lot of time trying to edit and trying to change that because people complain. Oh, you're interrupting Josh. Oh, no, I'm not. I'm not trying to. I'm just trying to keep the conversation flowing. Sometimes I'm actually rescuing one of the panel because it looks like they're struggling. And I can see like a panic develop in their eyes that they've taken themselves down a conversational cul-de-sac. And interestingly, one of the hardest things to do when you're a panelist on on a show, it's easy to start your point. It's easy to make your point. Ending a sentence is actually... Reasonably difficult, it's a skill. So sometimes I just get in there and I save them. And sometimes I'm just interrupting them because they're rubbish. No. Uh, <laughs> so sometimes it is just because I've made a decision on flow. I'm, I'm not trying to oppress people or keep them down. I don't think there's any of my panel that believe that they don't get to say what they want to say. In fact, we spend a lot of time talking about the tone and the pacing and the back and forth. And hey, it's okay to give up the talking stick. Because trust that it will come back around to you, and we have a pretty good system of of doing that. All right, then. So, thank you very much for listening to Miss Apex Podcast. I'm leaving the shed now and donning my shorts, my little triangle handkerchief hat, some flip flops, and in fact, I will tell you that we are not travelling light. We are taking taking a beach trolley with a hammock, with mats, a, a picnic table. No, not picnic table, but we are we are not travelling light. We're going to have a uh, a very Uh, as luxurious as we can trip to the beach and it's my first weekend off believe it or not it's my first weekend off since July 2020 it's been a it's been a hell of a year so looking forward to that break and I'm looking forward to seeing you for the French Grand Prix we're going to chuck out six podcasts in six weeks a carnival of podcasting until then guys I would say to you work hard be kind and have fun This was Misty Banks Podcast.